0: You're listening to Leading Up with Udemy. This podcast is your guide to developing your skills as an emerging or seasoned leader. I'm Alan Todd, your host and the Vice President of Leadership Development at Udemy. Together, we can work, lead, and live differently to create a better world. This week on Leading Up, my guest is the President of Udemy Business, my colleague, Stephanie Stapleton-Sudbury. I really loved getting to hear her talk about her meteoric career, growing fast and sharing key lessons like surrounding yourself with people smarter than you, building a network and staying positive in the face of difficulties. If there was one word I would use to describe Stephanie Stapleton Sudbury as a leader, it would be authentic. She's willing to be vulnerable and treats everyone like their partners.
1: So... The idea of being afraid that someone that you might hire could be better than you and take your job is actually the first thing to tackle. Why would I be scared of that? First, you want everyone that you ever hire to have career aspirations and to want to do amazing things. And if you're in a company that's performing really well, there's going to be so much opportunity for everyone in that company. And it's your job as a leader to help foster that growth in everyone.
0: More than a decade ago, Steph helped the customer success industry, starting with inventing the customer success role, building the teams, creating and leading the function. And without pausing to exhale, Stephanie stepped up to the next level when she was named president of Udemy Business, which hopefully you all know is one of the fastest growing and largest global enterprise learning companies. Steph's career began when she graduated from UC Santa Barbara, where she was a member of Phi Beta Kappa. Stephanie welcome to the podcast.
1: Oh, Alan, thank you so much. Nice intro. I really appreciate that. Yeah.
0: Well, you have so many cool things. Let's go back to a little more than a decade ago. First job out of college and all the way to today, leading a business doing hundreds of millions in revenue from all over the world. Tell me, how did it begin? What was it like the first few years? Oh my gosh. Okay. I'll start with
1: when I got out of college at Santa Barbara, I always knew I wanted to work with people and I knew I would end up in business. But you know, when you're a kid and you like can hear business people talking as adults and you're like, I have no idea what they actually do. So I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just knew, hey, I want to be in business and customer facing roles. And so I started out my career actually in kind of corporate event planning. And that's really common, I think, when you get out of college to be interested in that. And I loved that except for I wasn't the person that wanted to do the flowers and the linens, I loved the logistics. So I got into a role where I was doing like all of the transportation for massive conferences and things like that. And then was in a number of different account management roles. And then eventually, when I made my way into tech, I found my way into customer success. But to your point, That was still a rising title. And we were still trying to figure out, hey, is this what it's going to be called? So I started in uh, talent acquisition, software as a service company, and the product was in Seed. We were a Seed company. We had a product in Alpha. And I had a referral in and they were like, hey, we need a customer person, stat. And I was like, "Sure, I'm like, I, this sounds exciting. I was really interested in getting into to tech. And I got in, they were like, "Hey, we have forty five customers in this in this alpha. We need to take it to beta. Then we need to launch. Like, figure it out. And so this was kind of one of the biggest lessons on my leadership career of like grabbing the bull by the horns and using kind of what I knew to be, best practice as far as like, okay, listen to the customers, right? Get in, talk to customers. You know how to do that really well because I've been doing that for so long. Understanding what challenges they were trying to solve, get feedback on the product. But then it was really a lesson in building, right? And it was thinking about how do I figure out what the problems are and the opportunities, and then systematically break down what the customers are trying to achieve in component parts, put together a strategy in conjunction with the rest of the leadership team, and a big lesson in resourcefulness, I would say. There wasn't a whole lot of people there. So figuring out how to learn about kind of the industry that i had found myself in, but also customer success in a SaaS world, right? So figured out really fast how to get really resourceful. And I can talk a little bit more about that, but that was amazing. And then grew that over, over a number of years, eventually joined Udemy to do the build again when Udemy business was early stage. And we were thinking about, we had a wonderful marketplace business on the consumer side. How are we going to bring this to market for our B2B customers? And so was a founding member of the UB leadership team, and again, just grew and scaled that business, built out customer success, the customer journey from scratch, and then iterated over the years. Obviously, it's very different starting with a few hundred customers and getting to tens of thousands of customers, and then recently stepping into the president role. So that's like a little bit of the career history, if you're interested in
0: it. Yep, perfect. So we're going to start to unpack the lessons that propelled you along the way. So back when you're like 24 or 25 in customer success, it doesn't feel like you waited around to be told what to do. What happened there, figuring out the creation of the birthing of customer success? There's a few
1: components to it, right? I was lucky to have mentors in my career that were in the companies that I was working for that I proactively engaged with to say, hey, help me understand this and where should I go to learn more and that they also proactively leaned in. So I think the first lesson is finding those mentors and that's within your own company, right? So that's a little bit more already structured. The second was actually figuring out how do I go learn from other people in the industry when I don't have a built-in network? So I remember very early on, Gainsight was actually doing their first Pulse conference ever, and that was only 300 leaders of customer success at the time. So I went to that, and I remember sitting around a table, and I had chief customer officers of really big companies sitting next to me, and I was just asking them a ton of questions. And I wish I still had this, but like someone drew me the ideal architecture of customer success and customer support on a napkin, like those stories you hear about. And it was like, here's all the things that you need to think about for your type of company. This is how I would think about doing the customer journey, all that sort of thing. And kind of proactively went and found a community of leaders and networked and learned from people outside of my company. And then the third thing was actually learning pretty early on the importance of being able to surround yourself with people that know a lot about the industry that you're in. And so for me, what that looked like was leaning into people that were already in the company that had expertise in areas that I didn't have. But it was also hiring folks that had a ton of experience and a lot of expertise that definitely had more years on this earth than I did and had a lot of knowledge that they could bring. And so figuring out how to attract those types of candidates and bring them in was something that I think has been and continue to live to this day is super important for being able to learn fast, right, and scale quickly.
0: Yeah. So just on the idea of hiring people smarter than you, older than you, surrounding yourself with better people, like that feels like common sense to me, right? because you wouldn't advise to do the opposite. Yet, it's so hard to do and it doesn't happen very often. I'm just curious, how do you do that or feel comfortable, you know, not feeling threatened?
1: Yeah, it's a good, it's a really good question. The first time it happened was actually an accident in some ways where I had opened a role for a head of customer support Job At our organization. And we had a number of interviews, but one of the interviews was with a candidate. This was an inbound applicant. And it was a gentleman that had led teams of hundreds and hundreds of people at one of the Fortune 500 companies. And he wanted to get back into a startup and share his knowledge and was really eager to be a part of what we were doing. And so I was lucky in that way that he was interested and we eventually hired him. And what I learned in that process was that it, as a hiring manager, no matter what experience level that I have or what background I come from... It's really important to create an atmosphere where people want to come work. And for people that have a lot of experience, there's usually a very specific reason that they're interested in coming to a place, right? They want to work on things that excite them, or they want to be able to pass on their knowledge to others, or they're really excited about a specific part of the opportunity. So that's positioning that really effectively. The second thing is as a leader, making sure that I'm positioning myself as their partner that can help them achieve what they're hoping to on their next adventure. And this is no different than any other hiring manager, employee relationship. But I think the nuance here is what you talked about, which is the fear of why would this person maybe want to work for me if they could be my boss, right? What I've learned, the way that I've thought through that is positioning yourself as a great partner to this person and making sure that they know that you're there to support them and helping them do what they want to do, that you're interested in learning from them and being totally clear with, hey, I don't know as much as you do in these areas and that's why you're here, right? And not trying to pretend that the dynamic is any different and leaning into that person's strengths while being able to provide guidance and support and all of the things that make me or you or whoever's doing this hiring a really effective leader and partner for this person. And so figuring that out has unlocked a lot of opportunity for me in my career.
0: Yeah. There are a lot of companies that have toxic cultures and these bad behaviors, right? So it's pretty pervasive. And I think you're very lucky to have discovered early positive principles and culture. And of course, you have paid that forward throughout your entire career. But do you worry about toxic cultures or talk to people that come in those environments and see those threats?
1: I actually think a lot of it has to do with your own mindset. So the idea of being afraid that someone that you might hire could be better than you and take your job is actually the first thing to tackle. Why would I be scared of that? First, you want everyone that you ever hire to have career aspirations and to want to do amazing things. And if you're in a company that's performing really well, there's going to be so much opportunity for everyone in that company. And it's your job as a leader to help foster that growth in everyone. And so, I would I should want everyone I hire to be ambitious and excited about growth number 1 so getting your head around that and then the idea of what if they're better than me is really about looking at your own doubts and saying my fear of this person being better than me is actually my is my own insecurity. I should hope that this person is as good as they possibly can be. I should work on showcasing that and actually helping them do amazing things at work and that will reflect really well on me as the leader, right? That will open up opportunities for me and this other person. And so it's getting that devil off your shoulder in some ways and doing a lot of that self-work to drive the kind of the self-awareness piece which I think is really huge for any leader
0: as you mentioned, self-awareness, we did a big research report, as you know, with the conference board last year um, and Dave Alridge from the University of Michigan and RBL. And one of the things that came out of that study was that self-awareness is a critical component of emotional intelligence. And they said that emotional intelligence is actually more important now because it's harder because we're not together. We don't have these serendipitous encounters around the workplace bumping into each other. And it's also harder to connect via screens, right? So emotional mirror neurons aren't firing quite as tightly as if we were together laughing or crying or whatever. So this whole thing about self-awareness is really important right now. And I'm curious, how did you learn or develop self-awareness for yourself in your career? How do you suggest others do that?
1: This is a lifelong journey, Alan. (laughs) I'm definitely not at the pinnacle of this. But let me tell you a story. I was leading a customer success team and I was in a meeting with the whole group. And I was, my one of my kind of reactions when I'm frustrated or feeling a lot of energy is to get almost like intense with my tone, right? And so I was in this meeting because the team wasn't doing what I was hoping they would do when they were engaging with our customers. And so the way that I tackled that was by asking questions, but in this really accusatory way to this group of people around, you know, you're in rooms with leaders and like, why aren't you doing it this way? And why haven't we thought about this and all this sort of stuff? And I was really fired up and I was letting my emotion show. And afterwards, one of the customer success managers on my team was like, I need to talk to you, pulls me into a room and she says, the way you're asking questions makes no one want to engage. Everyone is like, we can tell you're frustrated. It doesn't sound like you trust us. This is not effective leadership, essentially. And so I was at first so upset with myself, right? Like, I'm so sorry. Second, I was very grateful that she had the courage to actually give me that feedback, right? This is a woman on my team. And then I thought about this a lot. And I realized the goal of communication is to make sure that other people hear what you're trying to say. It's not just so you can just say what you want to say. And this was a big lesson in ultimate accountability for me. In the beginning, it was a self-reflection exercise after getting hard feedback saying, what could I have done better? Like, what did I do to cause these feelings in people that weren't really positive feelings? And how would I adapt going forward? And then after that, I was in a number of leadership, coaching, Offsites with a number of different leaders. And we would go through a lot of exercises around this idea of ultimate accountability for your actions and the mark that you leave on the world. And one of the exercises they did that I really loved was they had two people standing up front, right in front of the room together. And one person would say something that was controversial. And then they would demonstrate the other person really has three options. They can either fight and they would put their hand up. They can freeze, or they can just turn around and try to look at what that other person is seeing from the exact same perspective. And that idea of really just trying to understand other people's perspective and how they're seeing you is a really big unlock. And then having ultimate accountability for deciding if you want to adjust your style because of the way people are experiencing you actually gives you a lot of Because then you are in control, right? Like you can change the way that you're communicating or the way that you're doing anything. And that feeling of accountability and that feeling of control is much more empowering than feeling like a victim or like you're not in control of the way that you communicate or impact other people. And so it's through things like that, and then a lot of asking for feedback, constantly and trying to think through how I could do better, doing a lot of reading and just going on this journey continuously on self-awareness that I think has been one of the most important things for me in my leadership career.
0: I like how you framed it right away, like, hey, I'm on a journey, which is exactly the right way to say it, right? We're never masters of this. But I do worry that a lot of people struggle with sort of quieting the ego and being willing to hear that feedback. Their initial posture is defensiveness. So, did you have to learn and practice this behavior? Did you ever have that defensiveness and body armor go up? Yes. (laughs) Does it still go up? Like, there's also the saying, you got to develop a thick skin. Nobody gets to where you are, Steph, without building, without developing a thick skin. Where's the line? How do you do that? You're talking to somebody that hasn't done that yet.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So, there's multiple things here. So, the first is, I once heard an executive that I really love speak. And one of the things he told me was people like to work with people that are authentic and that know themselves and that are genuine. Think about the people that you've really liked to work with. And what do you like about them? And it's true. Like the people I've loved to work with are the people you know that they're human. They know their strengths and their weaknesses. They're trying to do the best that they possibly can, but they do it in a way that's very open. And so that really resonated with me. And then there was, then it's been a lot of practice, right? So what I've found is in that example, where I talked about where I was getting very intense with my questions and it wasn't resonating. One of the things that I did was I went back to the team after that. And I said, Hey, I realized in that meeting that I wasn't communicating effectively. I wasn't talking in a great way. It just kind of opened the door on everything that I had gotten feedback on in that after self-reflection I had realized that I was doing. And then I said to them, this is something that I also know is a pattern because I've reflected on what I've done in the past. And I want you all to know that this is something I'm going to proactively work on going forward. So it's a public commitment. And I don't expect you to take ownership of giving me feedback all the time because it's on me to be self-aware. But if you ever see something like this or anything where you think I need to work, I am open and receptive to the feedback. And the change in the team and my ability to work with them effectively and their ability to hear what I was trying to say and their just openness, it grew immensely, right? And so it was seeing transformation after I changed my practice that you believe, right? You start to see, okay, this actually works. And then there's some things where you just got to build a system around it, right? So I know that if I feel like I really need to respond to that email or Slack really bad, I will give myself 24 hours until I respond because that has not always ended well for me. And so that's a system that I've created for myself to handle some of the things that I know I can be triggered by. But I think it's that combination of things, right? Like learning from others, seeing results in practice, and then developing your own systems based on your own personality that can really help with that.
0: Yeah, I love that idea of developing systems, right? Because I know the 24-hour rule or the sleep on it rule is one that took me (laughs) a lot of years to figure out So you start to unpack that in a lot of ways. Like I said, it's a component of emotional intelligence to be able to reflect and feel. And I want to go back to Brene Brown, University of Houston professor. She studied people that she calls wholehearted people for years. These people that had more courage and compassion and lots of connections. And she says the main way to be authentic and to be courageous and to be compassionate is you have to be vulnerable and that she calls vulnerability the birthplace of joy, creativity, belonging, and love. And I want to know, because I've seen in practice, you do all of these things really well. So how is vulnerability important to you as a leader?
1: Yeah, and I love Brene Brown, and vulnerability is one of my top things that I think is important for leadership. So for me, it's most important because no matter how you structure your organization, people in power have a responsibility and a weight in the organization that's just fundamentally different because of the way that levels are, right? In a company, or because of the way that that you structure your organization. And so, in order for people to want to follow leaders. And leaders have a lot of responsibility, right? They're making decisions that impact the lives of every employee on their team, sometimes the company. They're making strategic decisions. They're making customer decisions. And they're responsible for shepherding groups and strategy forward. And so in order for people to feel comfortable following leaders, I don't believe that you can expect people just to have blind faith I don't think that's a reasonable expectation of anyone. And in order for a leader to inspire those and to or to inspire those that that they lead and they serve really it's important for people to understand what who you are as a person, right? How you lead, what strengths you have and what strengths that you're going to call on from other people. And kind of the only way to do that is through vulnerability-based leadership, right? Which is saying, "Hi, I'm Stephanie and these are the things I'm really great at. These are the things that I'm constantly working on. Here's the type of environment that I want to build." And then bringing everyone along on the journey through vulnerability. So that's what it means, that's what it means to me. And then I and then the second thing I would say is that as the leader in a position of power in many on many different dimensions here, I also feel a responsibility to talk about things that might that might feel like for anyone in any job in the company that aren't talked about. So I've been very clear in at Udemy and my organization about my journey with IVF, right? And what that means. Like take how do we had to move investor meetings because I had an egg retrieval, things like that to start opening up conversations that other people might not feel safe to open up, but I'm, because I'm in a position of power, I'm, it's safe for me to open up on. I think those are two dimensions of why it's so important to me as leader.
0: Yeah. And that vulnerability, authenticity, self-awareness, they're all so tightly linked, aren't they? Yeah. So how does that show up in terms of your philosophy of customer success? What's your thinking behind customer success? If you summarized the last 10 years Oh my gosh, that's such a good question.
1: Patrick Lencioni, who I love, and I've read almost everything that he's ever written, he actually has a book called Getting Naked. That's about this, which is working with customers effectively. And it teaches things that you might not normally think of. But the idea when you're partnering with customers in a strategic way is to be open and transparent with them. And almost it's vulnerable, it's vulnerability book at the end of the day. It's like, how are you vulnerable with your customers to build trust, to make sure that you're working on things together? And so I would probably say in short, customer relationships are just like any other relationship, right? You want them to be authentic. You want to have truthfulness. You want to make sure that there's clarity and that everyone understands how everyone is thinking, right? Both about strategy when things are going really well, what's working, but also when things aren't going well, what's going on. And that's not just one-way feedback from the customer to us, well, that's really important and we need to be really receptive to us. It's also us saying, hey, this is something that we're working on right now because we don't have it totally dialed in. And so we're gonna hear the things that we're doing to address it, right? Or, hey, it feels like maybe the way that we're partnering right now isn't effective. That's how you build trust and you can actually do great things together. So I think they're very intricately linked.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting you said I like to partner with them and you say the same thing with customers. And I think that's a mindset shift for people just in terms of like power balance, like we're partners, we're in this together. And I think brings out the best in others as opposed to, and you describe it, the leadership literature would say much more on influence than authority. You don't use your authority, you use your influence and people follow you.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really good call out, this idea of influence. Like even if you have authority, (laughs) that the influence is still what's going to build healthy, thriving teams into the future. And it's not just like one way, right? Like my ability to influence is half the story. My ability to be influenced by all the smart people in the organization and in our customer base and all sorts, that is just as important. And so how am I open and receptive to that so we can have all the information when we're making decisions or trying something new or getting creative, right? That's why you hire many people in a company and partner with a lot of customers. It's not just one person doing everything.
0: The buzz around Gen AI isn't going anywhere. Leaders and managers are key to identifying how their companies can use the technology and creating a plan to grow their employees' skills. Learn how Udemy can help at business.udemy.com forward slash GenAI now. So we have a sense of your philosophy, but you run a very high-performing Business filled with teams of teams. You surround yourself with lots of strong people. How much of all of this is intentional accident luck? A h- huge amount of my thinking
1: goes to people. We talk to our customers about this all the time, right? The people you have in an organization are the most valuable thing to that organization, right? Their ideas, their skills are what going are what's going to power your company today and in the future and that's performance and strategy and direction. And so people are at the foundation of everything that we do in companies. And so it's a lot of intention. It's thinking about how do we create the culture that we want? And then Melissa, our she wrote that book on reculturing, which I think is spot on. It's this idea that you have to be really intentional about the culture that you want to create, figure out what behaviors you want your teams to exhibit and make sure that you're putting in the infrastructure to support those behaviors, then making sure that you're getting the right people in the door. And that's everything from making sure that you have diverse candidate populations to thinking through your interview process and that you're actually vetting through things in a very methodical way. So we have obviously core value alignment interviews and in addition to functional skills interviews. And then having the courage to say, hey, no, when someone's not going to be in alignment with our values, that this isn't going to be the right place for them. They're going to thrive somewhere else. And then once the people are in, it's making sure that you're creating the environment where people are happy and they're thriving and they feel like they can do the best work of their lives and that that you can actually harness their ideas and everything that they have the capability to do effectively. And so that takes a lot of work by a lot of people in the organization.
0: Steve Jobs said it doesn't make sense to hire smart people and tell them what to do. He said we hire smart people and they tell us what to do. What are your thoughts on delegating versus micromanagement?
1: I think that the word micromanagement just means that it's inherently bad, right? So we don't like that. So to me, there is a balance between providing clarity in what we're trying to do, why we're trying to do it, with the freedom for people to figure out how to do it, and then also space for them to put in new ideas in the organization. And so I like changing the word micromanagement to clarity. And this is another Lencioni famous book is The Advantage, right? And his whole framework here is you have to build a healthy team, which is really re- around the five dysfunctions of a team, which is my, one of my favorite book he's ever written. But then you have to create clarity and reinforce clarity and over-communicate clarity. And I think that's where... As leaders, we have to spend a bunch of time. And this is an area where I'm still doing a lot of work. It's like, how do I create clarity really effectively, but still give people the ability to work and do what they are good at doing? And I totally haven't mastered this yet. And sometimes I feel like I'm starting to like skid into the micromanagement. And I don't know how much of that is real or my perception, right? I have to get feedback. But the idea of creating clarity, I think, is the thing to anchor on there for all leaders.
0: Yeah, I love it. And I also think just the way you stated, hey, maybe I'm sliding. I need to get feedback. And the only way to get feedback, be authentic, be vulnerable, right? Create a positive and safe environment where people feel comfortable. So like all of those little things, I don't know if people appreciate this as enough. They all feed right back on each other, don't they?
1: Yeah, oh, 100%. And then it's not just one thing to ask for the feedback. Then you actually have to show that you can act on it because then if you don't do anything, the next time you come knocking, people are like, I don't know if I'm going to spend my time poking the bear because you're the leader. If I don't think you're going to do anything about it, like being very intentional about going back and publicly saying, This is what I heard. This is how I'm going to try to change or what we're going to do differently. Or, Hey, we're not going to act on this. And here's why. Just so it closes the loop and people feel like, okay, at least there's my effort giving you feedback, which is hard because you have more power than me, is worth that level of stress for me. And I feel like I'm going to get a return on my investment, essentially.
0: Beautiful. I'm a huge fan of positive psychology and University of Michigan professor and Udemy instructor, Kim Cameron, he's one of the leading positive psych scholars in the world. And he's written and proven again and again and again that set of behaviors, he calls them virtuousness or virtuous behaviors, gratitude, appreciation, dignity, respect, positive energy produces extraordinarily positive outcomes in individuals and their organizations. And I bring all this up because we've covered vulnerability and all these other things, self-awareness, but positive energizers make all the difference in the world. And Steph, I think you're an extremely positive energizing person. And I've seen your teams, because I've seen it firsthand. I've seen them light up with passion and heart and soul and give presentations. And I'd love to get like, how do you get your team so bought in? And does the positivity, does this come naturally to you or do you have to work at that?
1: Great question. So I am a glass half full person for sure. And so when I do strengths finders, positivity is always in my top five and has been since I was like 15. But that being said, positivity, have you ever read Multipliers?
0: Yes. Multipliers.
1: Okay. So in the concept of multipliers is that you have, there are traits that help bring out the best in the team around you, but there's also the dark side of your strengths that what sometimes is a positive can also become a diminisher. So for me, it's like always on is one of mine where it's like, I think that I'm always on. Everything's all like sunshine and rainbows and butterflies. And that, can actually end up hurting the conversation because it feels disingenuous and also people feel like they can't keep up with my energy. And so have that was another lesson I learned over time. But for the most part, learning how to harness this strength of positivity in a useful and helpful way has been a big, I think, contributor to my leadership or something that I lean on a lot as a strength. And so for me... Everything is an opportunity, right? And so, even when you're having the hardest experience at work, it's an opportunity to learn. There's something you're going to come out of this. Like, I've had some really hard days in my life, right? At one company, we were getting acquired. And so, I had to let the team go, and our product was no longer going to be offered publicly. And so, I had to make a lot of hard customer calls. And that was one of the toughest days. For me. But it also, as I was going through it, I was being very intentional about what am I going to be able to learn and take into my next leadership adventure from this experience. And there's so many things I came out of it, wrote down a list of like 20. For the normal days, like one of my mantras is like, life is too short to not be having fun like we spend so much of our time at work luckily we're in such a fun profession learning is just fundamentally positive and impacts everyone's lives for the better but you should enjoy being at work every day and like solving new problems should be interesting and like the customer conversation should be interesting and so how do we paint that picture for the team and make it okay to be having fun and like even an expectation and then when you see something not going great getting really good at identifying it early on and trying to address it so things don't linger or languish has been a big area of focus for me too.
0: I've seen it represented as an equation, pain plus reflection equals learning. And you described like the deep soul searching that you had to do and some of the worst things that have happened to you as a leader. Um, And I think that's a consistent theme, right? That those are where the great leadership traits or skills are forged in some of the most painful moments.
1: Yeah, exactly. There's a leadership coach, Jerry Colonna, who wrote a book called Reboot. And he came and spoke with us at one of our leadership offsites here. And he calls those crucible moments. Yeah. That when you're in the hardest days of your life as a leader, that the amount of growth coming out of it are gonna be is gonna be amazing. But you have to acknowledge that, hey, this is going to be really tough and not shy away from it, actually lean into it as a growing opportunity.
0: So one thing that I'd love to hear your thoughts on is just the topic of curiosity. You like to read a lot of books. You like to listen to a lot of books. You're up on all the management literature. I want to hear your thoughts. You're like, well, I found some mentors in the company. And then I went to conferences and found mentors outside of the company. And then I surrounded myself with people smarter than me. Like you, you figured those things out. Is it curiosity? What's the source of that?
1: The way I bucket this is resourcefulness. So there is, it's certainly curiosity now that I know more about it, but where it actually came from in the beginning was like necessity of like, oh my gosh, (laughs) I have to do this thing that I've never done before. How am I going to figure that out or else I'm not going to have a job? (laughs) And so like, even in the early days, it's like, how am I going to figure out how to get 40,000 people from Moscone Center to AT&T Park during rush hour traffic in 15 minutes. Like, I have no training on that. That wasn't something that I learned at Santa Barbara. And so for me, it was this kind of innate ability to figure it out. And so the way that I learned how to figure it out was learning how to break down a problem, understand what the problem statement is, and then break it down into its component parts really quickly, and then figure out how to tackle Then it was figuring out, how, where am I going to go get this knowledge? Who might know about this that I can go learn from? And then it was about just understanding, going back to that first bucket, that everything that people have done before, they made it up on the way here. This was a mental trick I had where, like, no one's ever been in this exact position I've been in or you've been in at this same company moment in time, whatever, and so there is the ability to create and be creative is an awesome skill. And so doing that having enough knowledge to be dangerous but then having the courage to try something new and learn from that have all ended up being components of that. And so now I just know those are that's my process. And so I'm just super curious constantly so I have that knowledge in my backlog.
0: And they say necessity is the mother of invention, right? Do you think more people need to get themselves in a position to have to be resourceful. What if a company's leader say, let's give everybody everything they need to do their best work? Well, then we're robbing them of necessity, invention, and resourcefulness, aren't we? Yeah, that's such a great point. Yes, it's like one of life's
1: greatest skills is the ability to figure it out. And it's so highly valued in people that anyone, any organization hires, right? You're always leaning into the person that's like, hey, I tried this thing and this worked, right? And so starting to teach that early on as a skill and also creating the space for people to feel safe in doing that, because everyone wants to do a really good job, right? I believe genuinely that everyone wants to do their best, and but they're scared of failure. And so the idea of like, how do you create the space for people to try stuff and share that knowledge? And even if it doesn't work, it's totally okay, but builds that muscle of like, you can figure it out. That's how you build leaders too, right? Is creating that atmosphere.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I really also love your point that nobody's done this before. Like whatever it is you're doing, your context and your role in what you're doing Like and every other person that has in whether they invented the iPod or formed a nation, right? Every single one of them has that in common. All right, Steph. As we wrap up here, we have a question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, what are you curious about and learning now?
1: I'll give you a work answer and a personal answer. So the first is kind of a cheat, which is generative AI. Obviously the World is totally changing. And so all of our customers are thinking about how they're going to transform their businesses because of generative AI. So a lot of just basic level courses that I'm taking on that, but then also thinking through and learning about how companies are applying this for every department to get more productive, the technology Side of it, and how companies are thinking about embedding this into the tech stack, and then also consulting skills around generative AI. So, one of the things that we're doing a lot of work on right now with customers is how to help them through this transformation. And then the second thing is, I have an almost two year old, and she is definitely starting to get that independent streak. And like, just her first reaction to everything is like, no. And she has a lot of emotions. Yeah. So, I'm doing a lot of learning on how to cope with and how to parent effectively, two-year-olds in that time. So that's a lot of transforming toddlerhood and big little feelings and all of those. And I know, Alan, our daughters are actually friends. So you're a couple years ahead of me. So I'm going to come learn from you on this.
0: I'm still studying. I'm very practiced at this. Like you with the journey to self-awareness, Mind is the journey to parenting.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes.
0: Never ends. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Alan. This was wonderful. And again, I love learning from you, Alan. It was an honor to be here. I've learned more from you about leadership since you've been at Udemy than I had in many years previously. So thank you again for inviting me.
0: Thank you for everything. Thanks so much to Stephanie Stapleton Sudbury for joining us on the podcast. What a great way to wrap up this season of Leading Up. Follow Leading Up, a podcast from Udemy Business, wherever you find your podcasts. Did you learn something new this episode? If you did, and I hope you did, consider telling a friend about the show or sharing the show on LinkedIn. We want to inspire as many leaders as we can. To learn more about Leading Up or how Udemy can help you develop leaders at scale and move business forward, visit business.udemy.com. The Leading Up Podcast is produced by Udemy in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Alex Vicmanis, Amy Machado, Brian Rivers, Danielle Roth, and Carter Wogan. Our original theme is by Soundboard.